All right. When we were last here talking about biology, we were talking about chemistry. Eventually, right? This will be obviously more of a biology class. Uh, but it sort of is, right? What biology is, if we think about it as the study of living systems, biology is sort of the emergent properties of all the chemistry and physics, right? Yeah. Right? So, I mean, we want to talk about reductionism and emergent properties again, right? Anything that you're going to call living, right? Life itself is an emergent property, okay? Uh, you take a bunch of chemistry and physics and you put it together, and all of a sudden it converts energy and it reproduces and it's separate from its environment, right? Those are all emergent properties of, of chemistry and physics. And if you have all of those things and we say, alas, you are alive, you are, okay? Um, so, if we want to try to understand, again, this is my usual setup and you're probably tired of hearing it by now, if you want to understand all of these properties of living systems as best you can, we can reduce to their smaller components, try to understand those and build them back up again, right? So, a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is stuff that you may recall from high school chemistry and biology. I used to say high school physics, but I don't think anybody took physics in high school anymore. Maybe you did. Right? Um, you might have heard some of these concepts before. I'm going to talk about bonds in water and some of the things that water can do and the different kind of bonds that we can make and what an electron is anyway. Right? So we're going to talk a little bit about some fairly basic things. Now, my earlier class today, even though when I said you've heard of protons and neutrons and electrons, oh, yes, we know everything about them. Oh, do you? Do you know everything about them? Right? Um, you know that protons have a positive charge, yes? You know that electrons have a negative charge, right? You know that Ben Franklin named these things, yes? You know that electrons bounce between energy levels and quantum states without passing any space between, don't you? You know that the unit of currency for electrons is they bounce back and forth between quantum states is a photon, and therefore the levels of energy that come out of those photons as they bounce back and forth is responsible for the colors that we see, right? Yeah, see, we're starting to kind of get into those little shaky areas. Um, we're kind of diverging from just uh, atomic anatomy into quantum electrodynamics a little bit, right? Um, but if we're going to be talking about how you carry energy around your body, where do you carry that energy? Okay, if we're going to say that glucose is a high-energy molecule, where's the energy in there? You put high-energy molecules in your car, don't you? Yes, ethanol, right, gasoline and things like that. Where's the energy in there? In the liquid. Hmm. Vague. Vague, <laughs> right? Disturbingly vague, right? Um, so uh, we need to kind of knock that out a little bit, right? If we want to be specific and actually talking about, okay, we're converting energy, so what is energy anyway? And what are we converting it from? Where are we converting it to? And how do we move it? Okay, where actually is the energy in these, uh, in these molecules that we're that we're talking about, right? And to do that, we need to talk a little bit about quantum electrodynamics, unfortunately, but it's kind of exciting anyway, so all good. Uh, so, like I said, you know about this atomic anatomy already, protons, neutrons, electrons, and things like that. Um, and we need to build a little bit on top of them. Some of these things, like I said, you probably know to death from high school chemistry and biology and things like that. Some things may be new. Either way, Right? Even though this is the beginning of the class and it might seem somewhat trivial at the beginning anyway, we're going to be talking about these things all throughout Biology 101 and quite possibly all throughout Biology 102. How you carry energy around the body is something that you talk about in every biology class of every level. So this is going to be a good foundation for you. Good? Yep. Fabulous. I think I was talking about this. Uh, this might be the slide that I was, I was last on. The depiction of an atom versus the reality of an atom. Okay, um, when we draw atoms on the board, or you're on the exam, or anywhere, right, we're going to draw it with a little nucleus in the middle and electrons occupying kind of orbits uh, like Venus going around the sun, okay, on the outside of it. That's a model. It doesn't represent reality. It re represents the behavior of an atom. If we want to talk about um, how many bonds can I make and what are bond angles and things like that, this is a good way to do that, okay? It's a good model convention uh, for depicting the behavior of an atom, okay? It is a bad model for depicting the structure of an atom, okay? Electrons are not going in perfectly concentric uh, circles around the nuclei here, okay? The nuclei are in the middle, and that's by far the majority of the mass of this thing, right? Uh, but the electrons are zipping around uh, the, uh, the nucleus like gnats around your head on a hot summer day, okay? And I think the last thing I was talking about was the overall size of this thing. If this was as big as RFK Stadium, 
this would be about the size of second base, right? And this would be a couple of uh, flies flying around in the outfield. Most, the vast majority of the atom is absolute nothingness, okay? So when I go like this, right, what am I actually, what's, what's stopping my hand from going through this table? What is, what is interfering? I mean, if we're talking about most of these atoms having absolutely nothing in them at all, occasionally might I actually be able to push down on this and probabilistically have my hand go through this tabletop? Yes, but it's extraordinarily unlikely to happen, right? I can sit here the rest of my life and do this, and my hand will never go through this tabletop except, whoa, once it does, you know? I'm not sure what I would do then, uh, because what are, the, what are the odds of being able to pull it back out again, right? I, I would have a real big problem on my hands, right? All right. Uh, when you look at the periodic table, you see elements organized thusly. You see 92 of them, and each of them have... Uh, this nice naming convention associated with them. The C represents the symbol of the element, in this case carbon, right, is a good example to use, appropriate for this class, I would say. Um, the number up here represents the number of protons. It's the atomic number. Okay, carbon has six protons. If it has seven protons, it's not carbon, then it's nitrogen. If it has five, then it's something else. Okay, it has six. Now this number down here in the bottom represents the atomic mass. It is the sum of the protons and the neutrons. So we add up the number of protons and the number of neutrons together, and we get this number down here, which in this case is a decimal. And it's a decimal because there are three different kinds of carbon. There's carbon-12, which has 12 protons and 12, uh, sorry, six protons and six neutrons. Six plus six is 12, yes? Yes. There's carbon-13, which has six protons, because it has to have six protons, and seven neutrons. And then there is carbon-14, which has six protons, has to have six protons, and eight neutrons. Okay? So Y12.011, that is the weighted average of those three flavors of carbon. Each one of those flavors of carbon is referred to as an isotope. Okay, so there are three isotopes of carbon. 97% of them are carbon-12, okay? About 2% is carbon-13, about 1% is carbon-14. So 0.97 times 12 plus 0.02 times 13 plus 0.01 times 14 equals about 12.011, okay? So it's a weighted average of the three isotopes weighted by abundance, okay? Atomic mass, it's a weighted average. So if you want to think about this from what you do in your chemistry class, um, this represents the mass in grams, okay, of one mole of carbon atoms. One mole being, you know what a mole is? 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd, which is a lot. A lot, yeah, stoichiometry ensues. Lovely. So if you have carbon on a scale and you end up with 12.011 grams of it, you have, not exactly, but somewhere around 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd carbon atoms in that pile. Nice. So isotopes. Um, I already kind of introduced you to isotopes a second ago. Um, these three different flavors of carbon is how I couched it, okay? You have carbon-12, carbon-13, and carbon-14. They all act like carbon, okay? They form the same number of bonds. Typically, as carbon does, um, they have the same general structure as in terms of where those bonds form in space. Um, so they're carbon in every respect. However, the carbon-14 has two more neutrons than the carbon-12, and that has implications, Okay. If you have more neutrons in your nucleus, you have more mass. Yes? Those neutrons are like television sets, right? You can get more and more and more of them, but they don't add anything to you as a person, and they just end up taking up more mass. It's kind of baggage that you carry around with you everywhere that you go, right? Um, so when we think about how these things might act in nature, even though they're going to chemically act like carbon, right, the carbon-14 is going to have more mass than the carbon-12. All right, so let's say that we're out uh, screwing around in the lawn outside with a football or something like that, and we have a wide receiver who plays, uh, plays football, and we have a lineman, okay? 
So we're standing on the goal line, and we're going to try to throw a pass down to the 50. Okay, and we say, all right, lineman, go out for the long one. We stop, we wait, we wait, we wait. He goes about halfway, gets some Gatorade. He comes back, hunches over in pain. Then he starts trotting a little bit longer. Finally, we throw the ball, right? He finally makes it to the 50-yard line, and he catches it. He might be quick in short bursts, right? Uh, but he's carrying around a lot of mass. He weighs 350 pounds, for goodness sakes. And that, happen that can't happen without implications, okay? Um, so mass has an effect. Versus the wide receiver, who weighs 180, right? We say, okay, go out for the long one. We take a couple of steps back. He's about at the 25. We pass it. He'll make up the difference along the way while the ball's in flight, right? Um, less mass you can move these things faster, right? And they tend to do so. Uh, so even though they can both catch the ball, they can both run, one can run a lot faster than another. It has less mass, okay? Um, this is kind of interesting uh, biologically for a couple of reasons. I'll show you one kind of experiment we can do that employs the use of isotopes, okay? Um, another interesting use of isotopes is with the fossil record, something that's near and dear to my own heart, as you already know. Um, we think that the earliest life on Earth unambiguously is about 3.7 or 3.8 billion years ago, okay? We're not finding dinosaur skeletons that are 3, 4 billion years old, obviously. If you try to think about uh, what, how you might detect the presence of life on Earth from 4 billion years ago out of a rock, what might you actually look for, okay? And what we actually find and are detecting is essentially the fossil record of something's metabolism. Okay, a biochemical reaction that has left a trace in the, in the rock record. If you think about photosynthesis, we know what photosynthesis does, right? What does it do? Carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, right? Add some thermoradiation to it, some electromagnetic radiation to it. Put it together and you make this molecule of glucose, right? And you uh, create this little byproduct that you really don't have much of a use for, for called oxygen, and just kind of pitch that out, okay? Um, one of the key enzymes in this photosynthetic reaction is this enzyme called Rubisco, okay? And what Rubisco does, and don't write this down, we'll talk about this in extraordinary detail when we talk about photosynthesis in a couple of weeks, all right? So stay tuned on this. It's actually responsible for combining the carbon dioxide with, uh, with the precursor for the glucose molecule. So it actually is responsible for that key, take carbon dioxide out, combine it, and start making glucose out of it. So it's an extraordinary important enzyme. It only takes the carbon-12, it doesn't take the carbon-13, doesn't take the carbon-14, okay? So if we, we find a rock that has a lot of carbon in it, and it's all carbon-12, what does that tell you? What happened to that carbon? It might have gone through the process of photosynthesis, right? If you find more carbon, right, in the geological sample than you should, based on the relative abundances in the atmosphere, that might have been photosynthetically distilled, right? The only one of the few things that we know of that can actually do that is the action of Rubisco. If you see the a metabolic action of Rubisco in the fossil record by a lot of carbon-12 in a rock, more than you should have, and you say, well, if this is what's going on, Rubisco is one way to do it. If we have Rubisco, we probably have photosynthesis because that's the only reaction that uses Rubisco. If we have photosynthesis, we have life, right? Fossil record isn't all bones and teeth, right? Occasionally it's isotope ratios that you, that you find in a rock somewhere, which is fascinating, yes? Absolutely. Most of them are stable, called stable isotopes. Stable isotopes don't change from one element into another, right? So carbon-12 is always going to be carbon-12. Carbon-13 is always, it's not going to be undergoing radioactive decay, okay? Um, there's oxygen isotopes as well, oxygen-16, oxygen-18. Right, um, and they are gonna go the same rules of mass. Oxygen 18 has more neutrons, and so it's heavier, so it doesn't evaporate as much as the, as the oxygen 16 out of ocean water. Okay, so things like this. Uh, one of the things that you can do with um, the more radioactive isotopes, it's not just uranium decaying into lead and things like that. We can have some experiments that we can do in any chemistry biology lab in the state. Okay, we can go up to Akanksha, right? And we can get a cotton swab and we can swab the inside of her cheek and get some of her cells, okay? We can put some of those cells in a Petri dish, give it as much nutrient as it needs and things like that, and they will start to divide and grow. Wonderful, not too hard to do. We can grow human cells pretty easily, all right? 
A question that we might want to know is, what is the optimal temperature for DNA synthesis? We can use a conscious cells to answer that question. Okay? What we can do, right, because our variable is going to be temperature, we can grow those cells under different temperature regimes, and we can estimate how much DNA is being made in each one of them. The batch that has the most DNA afterwards is going to be the temperature that's optimal for DNA synthesis. Piece of cake, right? So how do we measure how much DNA we end up with? Okay, one of the ways that we can do it is by taking some heavy water. Okay, um, some water that's actually under, gonna, going to undergo some radioactive decay. It's actually going to kick off some neutrons. It's not going to change uh, from one element to another, but it is going to kick off some neutrons. We can use heavy water. Um, the, the hydrogen has more neutrons in it than it should, and it's slightly unstable. Right, so that hydrogen component of the water is going to be kicking off and emitting neutrons that we can detect. Okay? So what we can do, the water that we put on these cells is going to be essentially mildly radioactive. We're not imbuing with uranium or anything like that. We're just going to use heavy water instead, right, that has some of these hydrogen ions that are or hydrogen atoms that are kicking off these, these neutrons. So we're going to go ahead and let these cells make DNA. And they're going to be sampling from their environment. Okay, they're going to use carbon from the environment. They're going to use nitrogen from the environment. They're going to take some water from the environment, right, some of this hydrogen out of this water, and start making some DNA out of it. Um, the sample that makes the most DNA is going to be the most radioactive, right? Absolutely. So what we can do after a couple of days, we can pull them out of their respective incubators at the different temperatures they've been growing, um, and just kind of go down the line with a Geiger, a Geiger counter and see how many counts per minute we get from each one of these samples. 10 degrees C, what's that, about 50, 50 degrees, give or take? What do you do? Times 9 divided by 5 plus 32, something like that, right? This is about 50 degrees, uh, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, not a lot of DNA getting made there. No? Not a lot of DNA getting made there. Not very radioactive. 15? Eh. Etch a scatter on the line. That's not anymore. You know, 20? Eh. Uh, we're up to about, what's 20 degrees C? About 70, 75, give or take. 25 degrees? Once we start hitting the 80s, right, we start actually making a measurable amount of DNA. Getting up into the low 90s, we start to hit a peak. Okay, mid-90s, high-90s, low-100s, we hit a peak. Once we start getting warmer than that, we start going down again. 50 degrees C, right, what is that, 130, 140, give or take, uh, we're not making any more DNA than we were down here at 10 degrees C, right? So the optimal temperature for DNA synthesis is... Right there, 35. If you convert that into Fahrenheit, that's about 98, 99 degrees. Sound familiar? Body temperature, right? Uh, the proteins that you have in your body, Akanksha, right, are very, very good at making DNA at about 98 or 99 degrees. Should that surprise you? Should that surprise you? How many, how many cells have you made during the course of your life? couple trillion, right? No surprise there, right? And you haven't had a long time to do it. 18, 19 years? That's a lot of, that's a lot of DNA to make, okay? Uh, when you get sick, right? Well, has anybody ever had a flu shot? Like you go to the doctor and get the flu shot? No one in this room has had a flu shot. That's fine. Um, I had one about 10 years ago. Um, the only flu shot I ever had. And it's the only flu shot I ever had because, well, two reasons. One, it was free. Okay, so here, get the flu shot from my job. That's fine. And uh, you feel like you should after a while. So I get this flu shot, and I didn't get the flu, but I did get a mild fever for about a day and a half, right, which is very weird to have. I didn't have the flu. I was not sick. I wasn't nauseous. I didn't have stomach aches. I didn't have all the I feel really, really bad symptoms of the flu. But I was about 102 degrees for about a day and a half. Now, that is a strange sensation, to have a fever but not be sick. That was weird. Okay, um, and then it was fine. Uh, a day later, the fever went away and all was well. By injecting myself with those flu dead, right, flu viruses and things like that, um, I initiated an immune response and I gave myself a fever. Okay, that's what a fever is. It's something you give to yourself. It's not something else giving you a fever. Your body warms up your temperature, okay, and the temperature of all the cells inside of it and, all the, and the temperature environment of all the things that are currently invading you, okay? 
if your optimum DNA temperature synthesis temperature is right here and you start warming, warming your body up by giving yourself a fever, what do you do, right, to the cells in your body and the cells that are infecting you? Yeah, yeah, you slow the reproductive rate, right? Uh, you take them off peak in terms of the temperature for them to synthesize DNA, right? Uh, you slow down the reproductive rate, your immune system has a bigger chance to, to knock them out, right? They don't reproduce as quickly, right? Um, one of the many things that a fever does for you. Make, you make uh, your body conditions not ideal, all right, uh, for reproduction of the things that are invading you. Your own cells too, though, right? You take your own cells kind of off that, off that peak too and rely on your immune system to, to make up the difference. So isotopes, right? Radioactive and stable, both very, very useful and very interesting to use. Nice. Now let's change gears a little bit now that we have the details of atomic anatomy well in hand, okay? We know where the neutrons and the protons and the electrons are, right? Yes? Good. All right, energy is what? Capacity to cause change. Yeah, cars change do work, same thing, right? Um, if you can do something to something, then you have the energy to do so. And that thing that you're doing is referred to as work, okay? Um, what is work? The ability to do something to something which requires Energy, so the circle is complete, right? We completely circular definitions of both energy and work. Um, if you can apply a, a force over a distance, right, that's technically what work is, okay? Are you doing work right now? You are, right? You're moving your pen across a piece of paper. You're applying a force over a distance, okay? That's work, and to do that, you're using and converting energy to do so, okay? Um, so that's what energy is. What we want to know is where is it? Okay, when you're using it right now and converting it, you're converting it from what into what, okay? And how do you actually do that? Where in those molecules that you're currently combusting and combining with oxygen are you actually getting the, getting, getting the energy from, okay? So we can think about the potential energy of something, okay, as the energy based on its location or structure. Right now, this has energy. There's a force acting on it. That force is called? Gravity, gravity. okay? If I change its location or its position from here to here, does it now have more energy? Does this have more energy? Who says yes? Who says no? So there are six people in the room and everybody else abstains, right? Who's abstaining? Yeah, everybody else raise your hand. Right? Uh, yes, it has more energy. It absolutely does. Right? I've changed its location or in its position, and now it has more energy than it did before. Think about coal and run mill out there on seven. Where does it get its energy from to turn that wheel? The water, right? Um, where does that water start? Top of the hill, and it flows downhill. Does it lose energy along the way? Yes, it does, right? It makes obvious sense for coal and run mill. Why not the why not the cordless mouse? Of course, it's up here. It has more energy. I can do more work with it now. Just like if I have water on the top of a hill versus at the bottom of a hill. Okay? As long as you have a force acting on it, gravity, right? I can do more work now. I have greater distance that I can apply that force over. Three feet, six feet. More distance, same force, more work. Good? Excellent. Uh, we have a similar situation going on in atoms. Okay? Um, we have a positively charged nucleus, and we have negatively charged electrons, okay? Why don't the electrons go crashing into the nucleus? Opposites attract, right? Yes? Opposites attract, right? Yes, they do, right? We've got a positive charge and a negative charge interacting with each other, right? It's not gravity. What is it? What's the force there? Opposite charges attracting. Electro magnetism, okay? There's an electromagnetic interaction between that positive nucleus and those negative electrons. Why don't the electrons go crashing in to the nucleus? Why doesn't Venus go crashing into the sun? It has energy, all right? Um, as long as it keeps moving, right? As long as it has that, uh, that conservation of energy moving around that, that orbit, it's all good. Okay, 
um, as long as that electron keeps buzzing around out there, it's all good. Okay? So just like water at the top of the hill has more potential energy than water at the bottom of the hill, this thing up here has more potential energy than the same thing while it's down here. The electrons that are farther away from the nucleus have more potential energy than the electrons that are close. You have an electromagnetic interaction. If you want to move that electron farther away, you have to add energy to it. Yes? If you want to take that electron and move it closer to that nucleus, you have to take energy out of it. Okay? How do you add energy and take energy away from electrons? You said you knew this right before class when it started, right, about the things that you learned in high school, right? Use photons to do it, okay? Um, uh, any sort of electromagnetic radiation will do it, right? If it's between 400 and 800 nanom um, uh, nanometers of wavelength, you can see it, okay? If it's above that or below that, you can feel it as things like ultraviolet and infrared radiation and things like that, okay? So you can either add these ele this electromagnetic photons to the electrons, or you can take them out, okay? If you do that, and you take energy out of some of these electrons, and you change their energy level, and the amount of energy that you, that you get out of that electron is about 450, 500, 600 nanometers in wavelength, then you see the color green, right? That's what color is, right? Wavelengths of different frequency coming out of, as electrons bounce back and forth between these energy levels that they have, okay? Now, electrons do weird things, okay? Like I said, um, if you go to Tyson's Corner from here, do you have to occupy all spaces in between to do so? Do you have to, can you disappear here and reappear there? You can't, right? You do have to actually occupy all points in between, okay? Anybody like to attempt to leave the room right now without going through the door? Just kind of disappear from your seat and reappear in the hallway. Give it a shot. Can you do it? Can you do that? Can your electrons do that? Yes, they can. Right? The properties of these things uh, at the subatomic levels have, thing, have properties that you don't. Okay? Electrons can teleport. They do it all the time. If you add energy to it, they will disappear from one energy level and reappear in another. What do you think about that? It is pretty cool. Right? Now we're getting dangerously close to this becoming a quantum electrodynamics class, right? But that's what energy does, okay? And that's responsible for the green that you're seeing coming in my shirt right now, right? Some electrons are bouncing down to lower energy levels and releasing photons in the process, okay? And those photons are at the energy levels that you perceive as green or blue or all of them, right? You're releasing a lot of photons of a lot of different colors. You're not releasing any photons of any colors with your t-shirt, so I just don't see any color. Right, we've got some pink back there, some red up here. Uh, that's a lovely blue shirt you're wearing there. That's kind of nice. I like the color of your photons. <laughs> your electrons have a very pleasing distance that they're traveling and releasing some very, you know, very colorful, bright, blue, bright blue, blue photons. There it is, right? Um, so we're talking about carrying energy in electrons. Okay, that's where the energy is. There's a lot of energy in the nucleus, right? We can get that out too. There are two good ways to do it. You can either build a bomb, okay, a big one, a nuclear bomb. That's one way to do it. Or a particle cloud can do it, right? You can change energy levels in nuclei by doing that, by adding and subtracting more protons and neutrons. You can build a particle accelerator to break them apart, okay? Um, you, can do all, you can do it a couple of different ways, all of which are very, very expensive. Expensive because you need enormous amounts of energy to do those things, okay? Um, it's not, the logic of it is not difficult to grasp. The expense of it is. You just don't get those energy levels in the human body to do that kind of stuff. You don't get it in a chemistry lab on the campus to do that kind of stuff, right? You need extraordinary amounts of energy to make nuclear chemistry happen, right? But the amount of energy you can get out is truly extraordinary as well, okay? That bomb in 1945 that flattened two Japanese cities, that was about, what, 10 pounds of uranium at the most, right? Ball of uranium about that big around flattens a city, okay? That was 4% yield. 4% of that mass was converted into energy. The other 96% of that uranium ball blew off, right, by the explosion. So 4% of that, so maybe a ball about 
that big around was actually the explosion, right? The rest of it got blown off into space, right, when the bomb went off. Okay, so a lot of energy there. There's a lot of energy there, okay? You don't do that, right? Um, you, you, you go for the, you go for the, you go the electromagnetic route, okay? You, uh, you just bounce your electrons back and forth between energy levels and get the energy that way. It's much safer. The implications of doing it the other way are curious, right? If you, yeah, you, you out for a jog and you explode, right, in this big, you know, mushroom cloud and blow apart Arlington, uh, not so hot. Okay. Um, so when we're talking about energy levels, we can almost kind of think of them in the same vein as we were thinking about our, our planetary orbits around the nucleus, right? Um, even though there's a model that explains behavior, right, um, we can sort of start thinking as well about the farther away an electron is from a nucleus, the more energy it stores mostly, right, for our purposes, we can think about it that way, okay? Um, if, an, if an element or an atom is going to react with another one and make a chemical bond, it's going to be using those outermost, outermost electrons to do it, right? So when we talk about carrying biologically useful energy in an element or in an atom, we're talking about interactions that we're going to have going on with those outermost electrons and those kind of planetary orbits that we're going to draw, which is good for behavior but bad for reality, all right? So we can just kind of make this kind of off-the-cuff kind of general statement that's going to do a service pretty well that um, outermost electrons are where the reactions happen, um, and those outermost electrons carry more energy than the innermost ones. And what we're going to do, right, to store energy or get energy back out of chemical compounds is move those electrons around from outer to inner, inner levels. All right. We good? All right. If you take a... Uh, atomic physics class or a nuclear physics class or a quantum electrodynamics class, which you're all going to do, right? Absolutely, right? I just convinced all of you. you know, there's a lot of calculus involved, right? Um, they're going to tell you a far more complete story, and uh, they'll laugh at the simplicity by which I just explained that, right? So um, that does not mean that you're a nuclear physicist, right? But it's a slightly more accurate and realistic way of thinking about how the world around you actually, actually works, okay? So... So when you think about electrons, right, going up and down between these energy levels, you can think about a bowling ball at the stairs, right? We could take a field trip and take a 16-pound bowling ball up here to the staircase, okay? Um, we can take that and carry that up to the top of the staircase, and along the way, we're going to be adding energy to it, right? Um, and what we can do to get the energy back out, we can roll it down. Well, we can do two things, right? We can take the direct route and just drop it off over the railing, right? That's one way. Right? Or we can kind of roll it down the stairs and funk, 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 funk. Okay? That rolling down the stairs is how electrons do this. Right? They kind of just go from one semi-static energy level to the next, both in the upward and the downward direction. Right? Whereas this is gravity pulling this bowling ball down the stairs. The electromagnetic interaction between the positive and negative is what's pulling that electron down the stairs when it goes down energy levels. Okay? Or we can add photons of light to it. Right, and take them up the stairs doing that. Either way, we don't get to move that electron for free, and there are implications for both directions. If we're going to move it down the energy levels, energy is going to be released. We need to pull some energy out. If we want to take it out farther out to broader right, and more distant energy levels, we need to add energy to it. You don't get energy for free. Right? That's thermodynamic law number one. You can't create it and you can't destroy it. If you're going to get it, you need to get it from something, Right? And if you're going to use it, okay, you need to put it somewhere. Okay? You don't get something for nothing when it comes to energy. Right? Excellent. So, again, Colvin Run Mill serves as a useful analogy again in this, the context of potential energy. Right? So electrons can carry this potential energy as well. There's a lot of potential energy in the electrons in fat. Right? A lot of calories in there that you can use. Oh, yes, right? There's less so in broccoli, right? You can't break those bonds. You can't get that energy out. It's called insoluble fiber. You don't have the machinery to, to break those bonds in one side, out the other, right? But you don't eat salad for the taste, right? You eat it for the blue cheese, which does have a lot of bonds that you can break and get that energy back out of, okay? So uh, your body's better at getting some forms of potential energy than others. 
you know there's potential energy in cellulose, though, plant matter, right? I mean, you can build a bonfire, okay? You can start oxidizing it, add some oxygen to that, uh, to that piece of wood, get that reaction started, and a lot of energy will come out, okay? You can do it. It's called a bonfire. You, as a human, cannot do it, right? Other animals can, right? You, you can't break those bonds. All right, so here's our solar system with our planets orbiting around it. Right? If we want to take Venus farther out from the sun, we need to add energy to it. Right? Right? If Venus is going to go in closer to the sun, we're going to have to get energy out. Okay? Um, in this case, we're going to have to do something like slow it down. Okay? Um, get some of the kinetic energy out. That will bring it farther into the sun. Right? It'll go around. Uh, the year will be shorter, right, uh, as it's closer to the sun. But it will have less energy as a whole. So the farther away requires the input of energy, so energy is being absorbed by these things, right, and they're being pushed out farther away from their attractor, the nucleus or the Earth, as the case may be. Um, when we lose energy out of things, those electrons, those planets, whatever it is, gets closer in to the attractor. I mean, carry something heavy up the stairs and you'll know exactly what I mean. All right. I talked about these outermost electrons a bit already. Okay, uh, where the action happens. We call these outermost electrons that are responsible for the bonding that we have, the energy that we're storing that we can try to get at, we call them valence electrons. It's the electrons in the outermost shell. And those usually will also be the electrons that have the most energy. Okay? Usually. Um, I only say usually because I can't think of an example where that's not the case, but I don't want to tie myself to a to an absolute statement. I'm hedging my statement when I say that. All right. The behavior of an element or an atom is going to mostly be determined by its valence electrons. Okay? If you know the location, the structure, the number of valence electrons that you have in an element, you can do a pretty good job of predicting its behavior. Okay? How many covalent bonds can it make? Okay, is this an anion or a cation? What kind of things is this going to be attracted to? All right, if you know what's up with the valence electrons, you can, do, you can go a long way towards explaining its behavior. So what an atom is, okay, what element you're talking about in the periodic table is determined by the number of protons, right? The behavior of an element chemically is determined by its number of valence electrons. Okay, so what element is, is it? Is proton, how many bonds can I make, is electron, valence electrons, and the number of them. We good? Anybody else good? Class, good? Excellent, excellent. The periodic table, as we know it, right, is organized based on its valence electrons. Okay, if you ever wondered why the periodic table is structured the way that it is, right, and I'm not just talking about its numbers, right, its sequential numbers, uh, what the columns actually mean, what the rows actually mean, things like that. It's mostly uh, where its electrons are and what the electrons are actually doing, okay. Um, the one, two, three, four, five, we already know about that, right, it's the number of protons in there. Um, what this column, what do you see in common about all three of these things? How many valence electrons do they all have? One. How about these? They all have two. These, they all have three, right? So the columns essentially represent uh, the number of valence electrons. This holds true, okay, um, especially for us in a biological system. We're really only talking about the first 30, give or take. Elements are the only ones that are really important to us, right? Um, when you get down into the metals, there's a lot of things kind of in between uh, that we're sort of ignoring, and that's fine. Right? Um, but these innermost uh, on, on the left side of the periodic table and the outermost ones on the right side, kind of fill this rule very, very adequately and, and very appropriately, okay? So everything in column one is going to have one valence electron. Everything in column two is going to have two valence electrons. And they're all going to act kind of in a similar way, chemically, okay? These have seven valence electrons over here, and the inert gases, which bond with nothing, okay, tend to have eight, except for helium, which has only two. Okay, so I'll get into what the, what the numbers are in, in just a second here, right? Um, if anybody's into science fiction, 
like a lot, anybody, sci-fi, Arthur C. Clarke, Heinlein maybe, any of the good stuff, the old, the old hard classic science fiction. Nobody's into that anymore, it's okay. Right, you're all reading Twilight and things like that, right? Um, one of the big things that, was, that, that oftentimes comes up in the hard science fiction uh, authors is that um, it's very likely that life on Earth could have arisen not with carbon being the molecule of life, but silicon, okay? Uh, if you look at the chemical behavior of silicon, it's right here. Valence electrons? Four. How many in carbon? Four. They have the same number of valence electrons. Chemically, they do very, very similar things, right? Um, there's more math here, okay? If you were silicon-based and the same size, you would weigh a lot more, okay? So it's not that life on Earth would be the same. You would just be silicon. There would be implications to that additional mass. But chemically, you could do it, okay? And life on Earth would be chemically similar if it was silicon-based, okay? Same number of valence electrons, similar reactivity, same angles of bonds, same number of bonds that you can make, all that kind of stuff, okay? All right, so when you think about bonding, uh, as you did in, in high school, usually we're thinking about covalent bonds. So when you say a water H2O or something like that, what's bonding those hydrogen and oxygen together is the covalent bond sharing okay, between, uh, between two atoms. So if you have an atom that has an incomplete, unfilled valence shell, then you can do some sharing with somebody else. And that sharing is what we're going to call a covalent bond, okay? What determines whether or not you have a filled valence shell? It's referred to as the octet rule. The octet rule is as follows. On that innermost electron shell, the most electrons you can have is two, okay? On the next shell, you can have oct electrons, oct, eight, okay? On the one on the shell outside of that, you can also have oct electron, electrons, right? So um, that innermost shell can have maximum two, right? The next two shells outside of that can have eight and eight respectively, okay? So, if I go back just a second to the previous slide and we look at our periodic table, helium doesn't react with anything. How many valence electron does it have? Two, right? But it, we're talking about that innermost shell. It cannot react with things, okay? It's done. It's going to be extremely stable, okay? Neon, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight valence electrons. Reactive? Not at all. It's done, right? Argon, Done, right? It doesn't react with anything. Sodium, very reactive. Fluorine, extraordinarily reactive, right? All the stuff, oxygen, totally reactive, right? Uh, so there's a relationship here, right, between stability, right, of, the, of these different atoms and these different elements and this octet rule, these rules of bonding, right? If you're, once your valence electron state is full and complete, right, then those compounds, okay, are stable. If you look at a water molecule, which we're going to do a lot of here, probably next time, um, you'll see that if you go atom by atom, those two H's and that O, right, and you count their valence electrons from their sharing partners and things like that, everyone's octet state is well satisfied, um, and that molecule is going to be very, very stable. Is there a lot of water out there? There's a lot of water out there. There's not a lot of elemental sodium out there. There really isn't. There's not a lot of elemental fluorine out there either, right? Um, this is too reactive. It's going to find something else and react with it. Okay. So atoms tend to combine to each have eight electrons in their valence shells, with the exception, right, of that innermost shell, which can hold two. Good on the octet rule? All right. This interaction that happens is referred to as a bond. We'll play a little bit of a 10 or 15 minute game next time. I'll give you a bunch of different atoms, right? And you can try to organize them in, in a way that all of their valence states are, are complete and filled, right? Um, it's almost like doing a Sudoku. It's sort of fun.
if you have three carbon, one hydrogen, two oxygen, go ahead and make some stable, stable molecules out of it, right? So you need to arrange them in a way so that when they make their bonds, right, all their valence states are full, okay? Sound like fun? Yeah, that was not convincing. All right, so we'll start, uh, start simple. A covalent bond, okay? Um, a covalent bond is the sharing of valence electrons between two bonding partners or between two atoms, okay? When you share an electron, okay, between uh, two atoms, uh, each of the shared electrons are counted towards each atom's valence shell, okay? So let me do this. Let's take, well, let's look at water, okay? Let's look at, I'm going to, there's a light switch in this room anyway. Uh, hit that light right there for me, will you? Um, oxygen. How many protons? Eight. Eight. Okay. So we have slightly better piece of chalk here. Eight protons. Neutrons. Sort of doesn't matter, right? Um, so we have eight protons in the nucleus. So how many electrons do we have? Charges roughly balance, right? So eight protons, you can think of this as having, under normal circumstances, eight electrons. We're not stripping any off the weird currents or anything like that. How many are in its innermost shell? Two, right? So there's one, there's another. That shell is now full. Yes? How many electrons do we have left? Six. So let's say uh, one, two, three, four, Five, six. Uh, so we have an unfilled electron shell, so we can make bonds, right? Let's look at hydrogen. One proton there. How many electrons? One electron, one proton, one electron, right? Uh, so there it is. We need two hydrogen here for water, don't we? All right, so we can do the same thing. Here's our hydrogen, pro, uh, our hydrogen nucleus with its one proton and its one electron. Let's make a covalent bond here. Let's make a covalent bond here. So with these electrons, these innermost electrons from the oxygen atom, we still have the, uh, here's one, here's two. That shell is fine, right? How about the second electron shell? One, two. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, we count the electron from each of the hydrogen towards the oxygen's valence shell. Okay, now let's look at the hydrogen. One proton, right? Here are the two electrons that are being shared with it. So how many electrons functionally are now in hydrogen's outer shell? One, two. Innermost shell holds two. How about over here? Same thing, right? Is this an extraordinarily stable molecule? Yes, it is. Everybody's valence state is satisfied, okay? Eight here, two here, two here. Excellent. Could you hit that light again for me there? I think it was that one. Good. Okay, so when we're talking about shared electrons counting as part of each atom's valence shell, this is what we're talking about, right? That individual electron from each of those hydrogen in each one of those covalent bonds is being counted towards oxygen's valence shell and vice versa, okay? And this thing is going to go ahead, these things can go ahead and react, okay, until all of these valence shells are in the satisfied a la the octet rule, okay? So when you're building these molecules that I'm going to give you next time and you end up with carbon, uh, with 14 electrons in its outermost valence shell. Did you do something wrong? You did something wrong. You stop at eight, right? Um, if you end up with seven electrons in its valence shell, you're not done reacting, right? You can still react more, okay? And the easiest thing to do when you get to that is, ah, just put another hydrogen on, be done with it, right? Hydrogen atoms oftentimes are sort of Valent placeholders is, is what I like to call it. It's kind of a valence placeholder. When nothing else, uh, let's put a hydrogen on it and take it up. Right. Speak. Uh, don't you have to draw on the 
Don't I have to what? Does it, does it matter where you put the electrons on the atom or so? Don't you have to put like one, two, three, and four, like all around it? Usually not. Um, electrons tend to pair up. Anybody yeah. take a chemistry class? How electrons kind of tend to pair up with each other? You talk about that? They don't disperse themselves evenly, right, uh, when they're just kind of floating around out there. They have strange positions in which they reside sometimes. Okay. So you can have a single covalent bond, okay? Each one of these, right, is a single covalent bond, right, between that oxygen and hydrogen. Here we're sharing uh, one pair of valence electrons. Here we're sharing one pair of valence electrons. We can have a double covalent bond, okay, where we can share two pairs between two atoms. Good example of this would be oxygen as we see it in nature. Could you hit the light for me over there one more time? Thank you. Let me erase, Let me erase this. The chalk is barely lighter than the board, right? Can you see it in the back? Akanksha, can you see the bottom right on the board back there? Yes? Okay, good. Uh, so we can talk about oxygen as it occurs in our atmosphere as O2, mostly. There's ozone, O3, and things like that out there. We'll talk about O2. So we have how many protons? Eight protons in the nucleus, right? Our innermost shell, one, two, fine. And how many electrons outside of that? Six. Six plus two equals eight. So we'll say one, two, three, four, five, six. That gives us our eight. Here's another oxygen nucleus over here. We'll disperse eight electrons around that. One, two, it's our first shell. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What I can do and be done with this, make a bond there, make a bond there. Count valence electrons. Out loud, class. This guy's happy. It was a funeral dirge. This guy's happy. It was so, it was so low, it was barely audible, right? Um, and it was all men, I think, right? <laughs> um, eight valence electrons over here, because we're counting these two. Eight valence electrons over here, because we're counting these two. A double covalent bond. Do they, is it a stronger bond than a single covalent bond? Yes, yes it is, right? You can have triple covalent bonds, okay? Uh, you cannot, in small atoms, have quadruple covalent bonds, okay? Um, if you start talking about a quadruple covalent bonds, then you're talking about taking a lot of electrons and putting them on one side of an atom, and all these negative atoms will start electrostatically repelling each other, right? Um, the amount of repulsive force between all these atoms being on one side is going to be greater okay, um, than a potential bond energy that you can make. It's not going to form, right? You can, create, you can jam three covalent bonds on one side of a small atom. It seems like you can't jam four, right? Um, the, the repulsion from those negative charges all on one side of an atom tends to be too, too great to, over, to, to surmount. Um, with larger nuclei, right, where you can have those electrons spaced out a little bit more, you can get occasional quadruple covalent bonds and things like that. Um, it's not a part of organic chemistry. Carbon is just not that big. Right? You just can't get all of those electrons on the same side of an atom. But you can get a triple covalent bond with carbon. Quadruples, uh, not so much. Can you? Thank you. All right, so um, if we look at elemental hydrogen, H2, here's a good example of a single covalent bond. Right? Um, each electron that is being shared counts toward each, uh, each atom's uh, valence state. So um, one, two for this guy, and one, two for this guy over here. So two electrons in the innermost shell, H2 is stable. That doesn't mean that you can't break that bond fairly easily with a judicious and rigorous application of, high, uh, of oxygen, right? We can take this kind of thing and we can send the space shuttle into space, right, by combining it with oxygen. So we can get a lot of energy back out of it, okay? But hydrogen, as it exists, is H2. It's fairly stable, right? There's quite a bit of it out there. About a little over 70% of the universe is this, by mass, okay? 
Um, here's our two single covalent bond water molecule that we drew on the board. Okay. Here's our uh, simplest organic molecule, methane, CH4. If you go around and you count the valence electrons for each of these uh, atoms within this molecule, all of their valence states will be complete and full. All right, so here's carbon. It has six protons, right? So it has six electrons, two on the innermost shell and four on the outside, right? Those four atoms on the outside means that it can make four covalent bonds, okay? So it can make four singles, a double and two singles, two doubles, a triple and a single, right? It doesn't matter how you divvy them up. Right, but you can get four covalent bonds out of it. You cannot do a quadruple covalent in this case, as I just kind of mentioned, but you can do combinations of all the other, as long as you can make four. If you only made three, you can still react, and you're not done yet, okay? And again, if you look at the hydrogen, two electrons in the innermost shell, all valence shells are, for lack of a better phrase, complete, happy, good to go, stable, no longer reactive. Uh, under standard conditions and things like that. How do we ever figure out how many electrons elements have? Um, uh, a physicist named Thompson was doing some research where he was shooting particles with an electron gun and measuring charge and mass and things like that back in the 1910s, 1920s, starting to determine what a nucleus actually is, how many particles make it up, what are the charges associated with them, how many electrons do you need to add to things before they have no additional electrostatic attraction to negatively charged things, uh, that kind of stuff. It's interesting body research out there, actually, on, on how this kind of, how do you actually figure this kind of stuff out? Because they're really small, right? So, I mean, this is beyond the limits of microscopy. It requires creative thought. Good stuff. So double covalent bonds like we just drew on the board, right? Everybody's electron valence states are Full, complete, stable. So one other concept that we need to throw in, right, um, that you may or may not have talked about in high school chemistry is electronegativity. Are we familiar with electronegativity? Have you ever heard of it before? If you haven't, okay, it's quite possibly the most important thing that you've never heard of. Okay, and I'm not just talking about, you know, just in this class. Like, as you exist as a person on Earth, electronegative, it's the most important thing of all time, right? Uh, maybe I'm overstating a little bit. Um, some atoms, when they're engaged in a covalent bond, will pull on electrons stronger than others, okay? Um, the atoms that have the stronger pull of the electrons in a covalent bond are doing so because they are more electronegative. Okay, so they'll be sharing back and forth between atoms, but they don't share well with others equally all the time. Okay, so the more electronegative atom will be pulling on that electron and will be pulling it closer to itself more than the other. A general trend as they exist across the rows of the periodic table. The more protons you have in a nucleus, the more electronegative that atom is going to be. That doesn't hold true for columns, necessarily, right? Um, but as you go from left to right across the periodic table, those elements tend to have more protons in the nucleus. Those elements tend to be slightly more electronegative. It's not always the case. It's a tendency. Have you heard of electronegativity before? We talked about why it's important before. Let's do that. <laughs> let's fill in that. Let's fill in that little 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 gap. Are we all good? Okay. So here's the periodic table of the elements, um, and each of the elements are raised sort of in sort of a bar graph kind of way. <coughs> Uh, relative to their electronegativity, okay? So as you go this way across the periodic table, you tend to get more protons in the nucleus, and these elements tend to get more electronegative, 
okay? Um, as you go in this direction, right, these atoms tend to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Those outermost electrons that are engaged in bonding are farther and farther away from that attractive nucleus. So you actually tend to get, oftentimes, reductions in electronegativity as you go down a column. The least electronegative thing out there is this, generally speaking. Yeah, and the most electronegative thing out there is fluorine. The second most electronegative thing out there is oxygen. Do you think that has anything to do with life on Earth in any kind of aerobic respiration kind of way? Right? Um, if you're going to take a nice carbon-carbon bond, like in a tree branch or something like that, and you're going to get a lot of the energy out, you combine it with oxygen, get that reaction going, and a lot of energy comes out. Now for this, I need a volunteer that doesn't have a lot of mass. Who, who doesn't have a lot of mass? You have too much mass. Uh, you don't have a lot of mass. Step up to the front. Yes, don't, you don't need to look around. I'm talking about, yes, you. <laughs> She's trying for it not to be her, but it is. I'm positive. Come on up. Unless you don't want to, in which case you can dish it off into somebody else who doesn't have a lot of mass. Okay. I got about 100 pounds on you, give or take, right? Um, yes? I do. Okay. Um, We're going to engage in a covalent bond. Okay? I am more electronegative than you. I have more, I have more protons in my nucleus. Here's some electrons, and we're going to share them. Okay? So we're going to share this electron. You can go ahead and grab the top of that. Oh, let me turn it off so we don't change the slide. There we go. Let's share this electron. Okay? I'm more electronegative than you are. Okay? So where is this electron going to be? I'm not sharing well with you, right? So I'm going to hog this thing about 80% of the time. You're going to have it about 20% of the time, okay? Every once in a while, okay. Eh, I'm going to take it again, right? I'm not sharing well with you, okay? Now let's say we have, let's say you're a twin, okay? You have a twin sister, um, and you're engaged in a bond with her, okay? Where's that electron going to be? Right in the middle all the time. If you had a twin, you would be just as electronegative of that twin, right? And that electron would always be right there. Okay, let's take that twin, let's boot her out, replace her with something that's very electronegative. Where's that electron going to go? Where's the energy going to go? Are we moving an electron closer to a nucleus? Are we? Yes. Is this going to release energy? Yes, it is. So what did I just tell you how to do? I just taught you how to make things that go boom. Right? You take something that has a nonpolar covalent bond, combine it with something that's electronegative, provide a spark, energy comes out. We're moving the positions of electrons. A lot of the there's a lot of potential energy in this electron here, right? Right now we're, we're moving it close to a nucleus. There's not as much potential energy here. That energy has to go somewhere, right? And it goes out. <clears throat> out. Thank you. Not very electronegative volunteer, ladies and gentlemen. Give her a hand. All right, right? So oxygen is useful. Let's say that we have some carbon-carbon bonds. Those electrons are right in the middle. They're storing a lot of energy, aren't they? Right? They're as far away from a nucleus as they can be using carbon. They're shared equally between the two. We can combine it with something electronegative. It's going to bring that electron closer to a nucleus. Okay? It's going to be in a lower energy level, a lower energy state. Energy is going to be released as light or heat. And when you blow something up, you usually get both. So what can you tell your parents about what you learned in school today? How to make a bomb, right? Combine something nonpolar with an oxidizer. Of course. <laughs> fluorine will work. Will fluorine work? Nitrogen, but the boom won't be so big, right? Fluorine, big boom. Not a lot of fluorine out there, right? So you can make a bomb, but it will be extraordinarily expensive, right? Um, you could just get more carbon-carbon bonds and use oxygen, and you would get a bigger bang, right? Um, hydrogen, H2, right? Where's that electron? Shared equally? Shared equally. So it's not a big molecule, right? But that electron, it's carrying a lot of energy right there in the middle. It's as, carrying as much energy as it can, given the position of that electron. Combine it with oxygen. Right? You move that electron farther in, okay, um, energy comes out. 
And the fun thing about that is you just produce water as a byproduct of that, which is kind of fun. When the space shuttle goes into space, have you ever, you've seen that lately? It used to be televised a lot more than it, than it has been. There's a space shuttle in space right now, right? Just went up a couple of days ago. What color is that smoke that comes out of the back of it? Orange. It's white, right? It's just steam coming out of the bottom of that, right? That's all there is. It's not, it's not burning. You're not burning wood to send the space shuttle into space, okay? Um, you're just combining oxygen and hydrogen, making a lot of steam, blowing the thing into space, using a steam rocket more than anything else, okay? Kind of neat? Yeah. Very neat. Um, you can combine glucose, right, with oxygen and release energy. You do it, like I said, with a campfire. You put a campfire out by cutting off the electronegative elements from it, okay, and fire goes out, okay? Um, so the rate of reaction can differ based on what compounds you're using, but energy is going to come out either way. Whenever you combine something with an oxidizer, right, something that's able to pull electrons away from something else, right, and get it over that energy activation threshold, which sometimes is a lot of work if you're trying to start a campfire. Oftentimes, we just douse it in gasoline. Right, to get the, get the process started a little more quickly to get that reaction going, right, you're going to be producing, or at least releasing, converting some energy from one form into another and releasing a lot of heat along the way. Heat being electromagnetic radiation that you get from those electrons moving back and forth between energy levels and the light that you see, right? Photons being released as electrons move back and forth from, from, from energy levels, right? Did it all just make perfect sense? Is it just sickening how much perfect sense it all makes, right? So... Oftentimes, students, when I start talking about energy levels and electrons transporting and things like that, they ask, this is a biology class, and some chemistry is fine, but why quantum electrodynamics? Why are we talking about nuclear physics here? It's kind of necessary if you really want to understand what's going on, okay, with how you carry energy around your body. How do you get it out? How, do, how does photosynthesis put energy into the molecules, right? You've got to move electrons around, and electrons behave in very specific ways. And those ways that they behave sometimes are a little weird, okay? But you got to accept that Richard Feynman, um, physicist extraordinary, uh, extraordinary from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, said, if you really think you truly, intuitively, and completely understand uh, electrodynamics, you really don't, all right? Um, you have to accept some things that seem very, very strange to you, like quantum teleportation and things like that, to really understand and describe exactly what electrons are doing. We good? Excellent. Um, I'm going to talk about lab for just a second. Um, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to see you in 15 minutes across the way. Um, it's not a good day for gum in the lab, and it's also not a good day for open-toed shoes. So closed-toed shoes, no gum today. We're going to be working with pond water and things like that, and you don't want to get that in your mouth, believe me. Okay, so no gum and closed-toed shoes would be good. Um, again, no drinks on the tabletops. That's a bad thing as well. Now, for lecture, I'm not going to see you um, next Monday, am I? Labor Day, Memorial Day, La Labor Day, right? <laughs> Memorial Day was back in May. Um, it's Labor Day coming up, so I won't see you on Monday, but I will see you obviously on Wednesday as, as we go. Um, but we need some reading to do. So if you would, you've already read chapters one and two, right? Yes, absolutely. Read chapters three, four, and five between now and next Wednesday. Um, next Wednesday, we're going to be in lecture talking about at least chapters three and four, and we'll probably start five as well. Those chapters are short, so don't get dissuaded by them. It's not three 50-page chapters I'm having you read. I think one of them is literally seven pages long, okay? So I'm not, I'm not assigning that. So read through chapter five, please, by next Wednesday. And I'll see you in 15 minutes. Have a good 15 minutes. <laughs>